sex talk. Derek and Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No. Sex talk with Derek and Miley. Hey, folks. Welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. Um, I'm going to try my best to contain myself in this episode, but it's going to be hard. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I have like the guest that I have been shooting for probably so far since I started this podcast uh, more than 80 episodes ago. I want to welcome Dr. Emily Nagoski to the show. I am such a fan. <laughs> this is the writer of Come As You Are, folks. I have said this book on this podcast probably at least 100 different times. Welcome. Thank you for being here. I am so delighted to talk to you. We are going to get in deep today, y'all. I, I mean, just be ready. We're, we're going to teach you how to like care for yourself in 2020 with uh, an, an election looming. We're going to talk about how sex and context is important. Be ready. This is going to be this is going to be a deep one. So before we, we started recording, I was telling you, I work a lot with female identified folks and, and your work around sex and context informs how I work a whole lot. You've been writing, you've been researching, now podcasting. How does context matter for female identified folks now? What, what are your thoughts now? Well, the basics of how context influences sexual functioning is the best analogy I can use is tickling. I know tickling isn't everybody's favorite, but if you're in like a playful, flirty, sexy, already turned on and doing stuff situation with your partner and they tickle you, even if tickling isn't your favorite, that could still feel playful and pleasurable and good and lead to other things. But if that exact same partner whom you love and trust tries to tickle you while you're pissed off at them, that same sensation feels completely different. You, Instead of being fun and leading to further things, and you slightly want to punch them in the face a little bit. That's right. Slightly. More Just than slightly. slightly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's happening because the way your emotional brain is responding to sensation changes depending on the emotional context. It's both the sort of like internal mental state and the external circumstances creating very broadly a sense of safety or a sense of threat. When your brain is in a state that interprets the world as a safe, fun, sexy, pleasurable place, it will interpret almost any sensation as pleasurable, something to be approached with curiosity and explored further. Whereas if your brain feels threatened or unsafe in any way, your brain is more likely to interpret sensations, any sensation as something to be avoided as a potential threat, even things that in a different context, it might have interpreted as something to be approached with curiosity. Spanking is the same thing. In the middle of the hot and heavy things, with consent and communication, if your partner swats your ass, that can feel really fun and good and add to the pleasurable experience. Feels like you, a party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you're in the middle of like changing the baby's diaper when you're in a hurry to get to work that morning and your partner swats your ass, maybe not so much. Yeah, so it much. might startle you or or frustrate or annoy you. That's I literally right. had this question. I was at a conference at lunchtime, you know, where there's like 
12 people sitting at a table eating lunch. And the woman sitting next to me, we had been talking about contacts. And she was like, could you please tell my husband that story? Because <laughs> just this morning, I was changing the baby's diaper. And mm-hmm. he patted my butt and said, hey, do you want to have sex tonight? And I was up to my wrists in baby poop. And the answer to that question, if I am up to my wrists in baby poop, is always no. Yeah. It's absolutely. just always no. For most of us, childcare while it's happening is not sexy. Not the sexiest. No. No. <laughs> and the thing is, there are so many other things he could have said or done in that moment that would increase the likelihood of having an enthusiastic yes to the suggestion of sex. And he just did everything to reduce the likelihood that she was going to be interested in sex. Fair, right? Like that broad picture is so important to understand that. And really, as I know a lot of your work in Come As You Are was kind of the focus is female identified folks. But this, I think, applies in so many ways for so many people. Oh, absolutely. I do not think this is particularly different depending on what a person's gender is. This is a mammalian brain function. So far, I think the research indicates that for women, I don't know if it's for like female biological reasons or if it is just when people are gender socialized feminine, their brain learns to be more sensitive to context. Whereas sort of like the masculine cultural process teaches the brain to be less sensitive to context and more sensitive to just like straightforward genital stimulation. I don't know why that difference might exist, but I do know that when I talk about context, it's really important for women to learn that it is 100% normal that in some context, if their partner like starts like kissing on their neck out of the blue and saying the certain special sexy something, sometimes that'll melt your knees. And in other contexts, like if you're frustrated or stressed out or overwhelmed or underslept or angry about the news, your partner can do the same sexy thing to your neck and say the same certain special sexy words. And your brain is going to be like, no, no, (laughs) not today. Door is closed. That's not a dysfunction. You're not diseased. You're not broken. Mm. There's nothing wrong. That's Mm. just context doing its thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like this is the conversation I have with my clients. I mean, with friends and a lot of people that yo, your brain is built to protect you. Your amygdala is an amazing thing that has been primed to pay attention for threats to your life. Right. Bessel van der Kolk calls it the watchtower. <laughs> yes. Like this, you have this powerful thing that keeps you alive. It's not broken. So I, I just think that's beautiful. And you just mentioned the news. I, and I think we should jump right into talking about your new podcast, which um, welcome to the podcasting world. We're so happy to have you. So feminism in 2020. Tell me about how science can help you reduce stress. I, I want to know all about it. Yeah. So we call the podcast the Feminist Survival Project 2020 because we have this very specific time-limited goal of helping feminists make it from now through the election in 2020. Like, how are we going to get through it? It's going to be a shit show. Talk about contacts that make your brain feel unsafe and threatened. Like, there's going to be daily news that enrages you. And part of your context is whether you feel overall safe. It's not just your personal relationships, but the larger cultural context that's constantly telling you that, you know, your body doesn't really belong to you. It belongs in the public domain for men to buy and sell. That's not a context that's like super erotic. 
Mm. I think that there's like these smaller pieces too. And then I think many female identified folks are not necessarily, they're experiencing them, but maybe not necessarily knowing that, oh, this is actually part of that threat system. This is that my small experiences during the day are part of this as well. A lot of women I know, when I talk about this stuff, they feel like there's something wrong with them or they're broken if something beyond their control interferes. And my dog is getting up. Sorry if you can hear that noise. Hi, puppy. (laughs) Her name is Thunder. She's very sweet. So Women feel worried that they're broken if, like, the news residually interferes with their ability to experience sexual pleasure and arousal. No. My own personal experience since the 2016 election is that my threat system is sort of constantly online. I feel constantly under threat because I know that my basic bodily autonomy, my rights as protected by law are being eroded a little more every day. So the mechanism in your brain that governs sexual response, it's called the dual control mechanism. And there's a sexual accelerator that responds to all the sex-related information, and it sends the turn-on signal. And then there's a brake that notices all the potential threats, and it sends the turn-off signal. So for the last, I don't know, three-ish years, my brakes have been a little bit on all the time because I'm so aware of the ways that the federal government is constantly encroaching. It's not just my personal rights. Because this is the work I do, watching the work I do be contradicted and just sort of eroded away, it's an existential kind of rage. Yes, a fundamental harm to other people and us, right? Like all, all the time, Every single day. It's kind of like I was actually thinking while you were giving like the brake example. It's like when you put that emergency brake on and you take it off and it's still on a little bit and then you hear that terrible noise. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just always on a little bit. And so my sexual response has changed over this time. I require a longer runway now. Fair. Like I need advance notice to prepare myself and like really put in some deliberate effort to get my brain into a calm, relaxed, peaceful, safe enough state of mind to be able to feel deeply connected to my partner. Thank goodness he has me for a wife (laughs) because I can explain to him, look, it has nothing to do with you. I love you just as much, if not more. And the world is hitting my brakes. So like it's us against the world. If we want our sex life to be connected and pleasurable and awesome, then we got to work together to help my brain release the outside world so that it can just be you and me connected together, enjoying our bodies together. And it takes effort. If, if I didn't know the things I know about context, I'd be really worried that there was something permanently broken with me. And I know... <laughs> fingers crossed by November 2020, like something's going to release from my breaks and my sex life will just be like right back because 
at the very least, you know, fingers crossed, well, we're going to keep saying that again and again, that, that we'll have some relief, we'll have some maybe even barriers in place, checks, checks and balances as our government was supposed to have since from the very, very beginning. And I mean, we've kind of delved right knee deep into to our kind of politics in this, but it, but I think we would be, we would be remiss without acknowledging this huge, huge cloud that exists in our lives every single day. Yes. And my own therapist informs me that my reaction to political stuff is more intense and more personal than it is for a lot of people. Part of that is because of the work I do, that when I see these policy changes being implemented, when I see the federal government encroaching on women's reproductive rights and women's basic bodily autonomy, that's my work. That is my sense of purpose and meaning that they are eroding. So I take it more personally than most people do. Absolutely. It also happens to be the case, unfortunately, that the particular psychological profile of the president is really reminiscent of my destructive father's psychological Mm. profile, sort of like narcissistic asshole kind of feature of it. So in addition to the like existential- That's in the the DSM, y'all. Asshole. That is in the DSM. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Just like controlling, gaslighting dickhead- so I constantly feel like the federal government is being run by my father and that activates a bunch of like old childhood shit that I've been in therapy for a long time to try and undo. So in a way, like I've tried to reframe it as like what a gift it is to give me this opportunity to like dwell in that space and learn how to survive, use different strategies for tolerating being gaslit every day of my life, being condescended to and being treated like subhuman what a great learning opportunity this is for me. <laughs> I mean, like it's gonna it's teaching you how to use your internal skills, mindfulness. <laughs> but but that's the thing. Like, I, I think that story, the story you were telling right now, it is reminiscent for me for ex ex-boyfriends. It is reminiscent for many people out there of parent figures, of right. relationships in their life. Toxic people. Yes, absolutely in their lives. And I and it is that reminder all the time. And I think that's even, that's even uh, that zooming out you and I were talking about before we got started about how does context matter? And it matters huge right now. Huge, Yeah. And there's a sort of like meta context too, that I have worked so hard for so many years to unlearn the patterns that I taught myself as a child to survive in that family. Like I've worked so hard to get out of that. And I am angry that I'm put in a position where I'm forced to re-encounter all that bullshit and despair from my childhood. And that also is not awesome for my sex life. Fortunately, I have devoted not just my personal development, but my career to learning and teaching the strategies to cope. And if I didn't have it literally as my job, I'm not sure I'd have adequate skills to deal with it. And again, as my therapist reminds me, I experience it more intensely than a lot of people do because of the combination of professional and personal history. So if it can work for me, I kind of feel like it can work for just about anybody. I would absolutely, completely agree. Absolutely agree. So, I mean, you're talking about your therapist because, I mean, to me... Because of course I'm in therapy. 
Exactly. Therapy for everyone, everybody. I want to just like hand out business cards for everyone all the time, not just for myself, but for other therapists out there. There, it, it is necessary. It is, I mean, we were talking a little bit about what feminist informed care for people generally might mean. And I think that the absolute, that's connected to what you were talking about, how science can reduce stress. So like, how do you feel like maybe therapy and like that kind of feminist umbrella has been able to help you reduce stress overall? Oh boy. So there's a couple of things. One, just from a basic science perspective, one of the most powerful ideas in both Come As You Are and in the new book Burnout and on the podcast is the idea of separating what's causing our stress from the stress itself. Biologically, our stress, the stress response mechanism in our bodies is this evolutionarily adaptive response to help us survive stressors like being chased by a lion. But the thing about being chased by a lion is that there's a distinct beginning, middle, and end to these, and it only lasts a few minutes. That's how our stress response is supposed to work. These days, our stressors don't have that kind of clear beginning, middle, and end, and our stressors might last all day, every day for weeks or months or years at a time. And stress is good for us if we experience it for a few minutes at a time. But if we stay in that state of increased adrenaline and cortisol, increased respiration rate, reduced reproductive functioning, reduced digestive functioning, reduced immune functioning, it has a long-term impact on our bodies. One of my favorite examples is that an activated stress response slows gastric emptying, so food stays in your stomach longer, but speeds up bowel motility. And the result of that, like in the short term is nothing at all, but in the long term to stay in that place, IBS. So stress literally causes IBS, but only if you stay in that elevated state for a long time. That's the bad news. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, we have a higher rate of anxiety disorders throughout anxiety, our- Anxiety, depression, depression, IBS. All women are the ones who experience these things. Yeah. Ah, absolutely. Sleep disorders. Yes. Mm. The good news, the flip side of it is that because the process of dealing with our stressors is separate from the process of dealing with our stress- we can complete the stress response cycle. We can shift our bodies into a feeling of safety and calm and peace, even while the stressors are still there. So even while we're surviving in the midst of, you know, the white supremacist, cis, heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative post-industrial capitalism, we can still care for our bodies in a way that grants them access to a feeling of peace and safety so that we can heal and stay well enough to continue engaging in the behaviors that deal with the stressors, which alas are separate from the behaviors that deal with the stress itself. This is exactly what I am saying probably every single day to my clients is that you can use your body to teach your mind to be able to access calm. This was news for my sister. I have an identical twin sister named Amelia. She wrote Burnout with me. She co-hosts the podcast with me. And she is the reason why Burnout exists as a book. She was in grad school. She remains the only woman ever to finish her doctoral program because the environment is that toxic to women. 
And in the course of it, it put her in the hospital twice. And the first time she was in the hospital, imagine seeing your identical twin in a hospital ground crying in so much pain. She literally thought she was going to die. They kept her in the hospital four days. Her blood, her white blood cell count was through the roof. They wouldn't let her out. They couldn't find a diagnosis. And ultimately, they were just like, well, it's just stress. Go home and relax. <laughs> Thank you, medical what? community. We appreciate <laughs> that. We appreciate that. Thanks. Exactly. Like, so helpful. So helpful. So I'm a house, her twin sister is a health educator. So I'm like bringing her papers and books and journal articles about. I'm like, sure you are sounding the alarm. Like, yeah, I'm, I show my love through evidence-based science. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Here's the research. Yes. That is, you, you are speaking my love language right now, Emily. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Here's peer-reviewed science. <laughs> and uh, she began to recognize that emotions are not just ideas. They're not just sort of like things that exist in the vapor. They are biological phenomena that happen in her physical body, that the rage and frustration and sense of helplessness existed in her chemistry, which was bad news because it meant that it was poisoning her a little bit. Grad school was poisoning her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a pretty explicit way, but it was good news because it meant she could harness the power of her biology to be able to purge the toxin, to move her body to a place of safety and calm so that she could be well enough to finish her degree. So like we started writing lists of what are the evidence-based strategies you can do to purge your rage. Physical activity is first on the list, obviously, because when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? You run. So when you're stressed out by white supremacist, cis heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative post-industrial capitalism, what do you do? You run. Even though there is nowhere you can literally run to that will let you escape this stressor, your body doesn't know that. All your body knows is that if you move it, it will eventually go, ah, oh, I'm safe now. Exactly. So people who have experienced the sort of like runner's high, I'm a natural exerciser. I'm a per, I know for sure, no matter how much I'm like, ugh, I just don't want to put on my shoes. If I do put on my shoes, if I get on my bike or get on the road, I know that in 20 to 40 minutes, my body's going to go whoosh. And the stress I took with me is just going to like drop away. And I'm going to feel like the sun is shining brighter and I'll be calmer and more peaceful and feel one with the universe. My identical twin sister, raised in the same household, has literally never in her life experienced that. She's not a natural exerciser. And unfortunately, when you look at the research on like how to help people who, don't, who aren't natural exercisers, who have pain, who have injury, who have illness, or for whatever reason, just aren't going to exercise, unfortunately, most of that research just says, find a way to love exercise. And I find that unacceptable. So we found a bunch more strategies. The one Amelia used that really changed everything, because she was already exercising six days a week on the elliptical machine in the gym because she's a good girl who does what she's told, and everybody said exercise is good for you, so she was doing it, but she wasn't getting the stress complete. She would you know, spend the time on the elliptical machine and watch TV or listen to an audiobook or something, and when she got done, she'd feel hot and sweaty and tired, but not better. So she started incorporating imagination into her process. Specifically, she would imagine 
So the reason this works, I will say, is we all know that the imagination can activate a stress response. Like if you just sit there and start thinking about the things that stress you out, your physiology will change. Your heart will beat faster. Your blood pressure will go up. Your digestive system will start to churn. We know that imagination can activate a stress response cycle. Good news, that means it can also complete a stress response cycle. So she would get on the elliptical machine and imagine herself as Godzilla stomping on the state land-grant institution where she was trying to get her degree, the bursar's office in the parking lot. And by the time she got to the end of that workout, she wasn't just hot, sweaty, and tired. She felt elated and ready to conquer. She got to the end of a stress response cycle. She's using like a mindfulness cognitive diffusion skills. Like it, that's, I mean, that is exactly what she is doing. Exactly. And it was so powerful for her to know that her brain and her body could interact in this way to like heal her body. And it changed her relationship with both her imagination and her thoughts and with her body itself. More like, oh, my body physically exists and is real and is part of my existence as a human. Hooray! Yay! Quick break from the action, folks. Ah, action. <laughs> I just want to tell you about my Patreon. Every week, I bring you guests and, seriously, lots of sex nerdery. <laughs> Help me keep doing that by becoming a supporter. What do you get in return? Cool perks. For real. I am going to be doing shout-outs, stickers, a bunch of stuff. So check it out at ericamiley.com forward slash Patreon. That's E-R-I-K-A-M-I-L-E-Y dot com forward slash Patreon. I hope to see you and see more of you by becoming a Patreon. Thanks, guys. This is something that I I actually do something very, very similar when I run because I am like you. I am a natural exerciser. I have been since I was very young. I enjoy it. I find peace. I I can access peace faster. But I actually, in this state of the world today, have struggled myself to find that peace and have to get there. and, And I have to do a lot of things while I run to get there. And one of the things I do is very similar. I actually picture darkness all over me and I picture it melting away with every stride of my run. It is essentially a very similar way to do it, but it is the same. It is creating the, ending the circus, circuit. Yeah, circus, that works too. Yeah. Um, but, like, <laughs> but it completes that circuit, exactly how you were talking about. Yeah, you get all the way to the end of it. And if moving your body is not for you, you can literally do this like lying in your bed, viscerally imagining like beating the shit out of whatever it is that act like you can't in real life beat the shit out of people but you can like if you're imagining it in a way that makes your jaw go tense and your hands clench and your heart beat faster and you just viscerally imagine it and you let your muscles shake and shudder you will eventually your body will tell you you did it you made it to the end, you defeated your foe, you have conquered and are ready to take on the next thing. You complete the stress response cycle. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And here's the nerd in me. I'd love to know if video games do the same thing. They can, but they don't always. It's sort of like TV and stories and movies. Sometimes we watch movies or read books or play games as a way to numb out 
there's sort of like three pain kinds of interventions. There's uh, getting rid of the thing that's causing the injury. There's healing the existing injury and things that complete the stress response cycle heal the injury. And then there's pain management strategies that just numb the pain enough for you to tolerate living with this injury long enough for it to heal. Sometimes engaging with storytelling, which is what playing video games is, is like you do it really viscerally and your body goes through something, your heart beats faster and you experience a genuine sense of yes when you get to the wind. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sometimes, when I play Breath of the Wild, that's how, what happens for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, if your body is doing some work, then it's helping you to move through the cycle. If you are just numbly like going through it, and it's just a distraction so that you're not paying attention to the pain, then it's pain management. And I am in favor of that. Nobody <laughs> needs to be a hero to their suffering. Right. Like sometimes you need like pride and prejudice that you've seen a million times. <laughs> no one needs to be a hero to their suffering. Yes, I think that isn't... I'm not a fan of martyrdom. Exactly. Like... I <laughs> Right. Like, that's something that I am often talking to my folks about is like, yo, you do not have to be you don't have to like lay down at the altar of your own pain. Like you don't have to do that. It's not something that you are you like, you, there is no imperative that says you have to be a shitty roommate to yourself on the inside. So the big umbrella, like I think that you're tackling in this new podcast, like what wellness really is. We've already started talking about like how to care for yourself, but like when you're kind of tackling it from this, the feminism lens, like what is wellness and what do you want your listeners to know? For us, the definition of wellness is that wellness is not a state of mind. It is not a state of being. We are not aiming for a state of Gwyneth Paltrow-like peace and perfection. Wellness is a state of action. It is your body having the freedom to move through the cycles of stress into peace and back into stress and back into peace and all the other cycles and oscillations that are innate to our million bodies, like into active attention focus and back into rest and into focus and attention and back into rest. That's both sort of cognitively in the way we pay attention. And it's also from wake to sleep to wake to sleep. It's built into our bodies to oscillate through those cycles from connection to autonomy and back to connection and back to autonomy. We are not built to be fully autonomous. We're also not built to be connected all the time to other people. Connection is the one that gets short shrift in our culture because of the whole like lone cowboy. We're all supposed to all develop from total dependence in infancy to total autonomy in adulthood. That's a patriarchal lie. We're supposed to develop from total dependence in infancy to oscillating through connection to autonomy, to connection back to autonomy. So wellness is when we have the freedom to allow our bodies to move through the cycle. Some of us are more free than others for a wide range of reasons. But the more we notice that our body's needs are bumping up against cultural narratives that prevent us from being able to move through the natural rhythms of our bodies, the more we can know that our sense of well-being or sense of lack of well-being is not coming from anything wrong with our bodies, but from a dysfunctional environment that's an obstacle between us and meeting our body's needs. And the biggest obstacle is a thing in the book, we call it human giver syndrome. 
Hmm. Say more about that. <laughs> oh, boy, will I. We take the language from a very dark but short book by the moral philosopher Kate Mann. It's called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. In it, she postulates a world where there are two types of humans. There are human beings who have a moral obligation to be their full humanity, hence the name human being. And they should be as competitive, acquisitive, and entitled as it takes to maximize their full humanity. And then there are the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity their time, their attention, their patience, their smiles, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, their lives sacrificed on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience. Did she write my diary? Like, I feel like um, (laughs) I'm a little, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable. Yeah, a little (laughs) attacked right there. Yeah, a little attacked. That's how I felt. (laughs) So this was an incredibly important idea for us. And we formulated a version of this that we call human giver syndrome, which is when the culture expects a human giver to be, here's the list. Here are moral obligations to be pretty, happy, yet calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others, which means that if we are ever attentive to our own needs, we are wasting time and energy trying to meet our own needs. We are betraying our moral obligation to give to others. And because it's our moral obligation, if we fall short in any way by, for example, taking time to meet our own basic biological needs, then we deserve to be punished. Again, I feel attacked. Right? (laughs) Here's the worst part, though. If there isn't someone around to punish us, we'll just go ahead and beat the shit out of ourselves. Uh, Yep. Easily. Easily uh, can happen within our own minds. Absolutely. So we frame this as the mad woman in the attic. At some point in our lives, I was about 11, somewhere between 9 and 11, and Amelia was between 5 and 6 when she first had an explicit sense that there was a gap between who she really was and who the world expected her to be. And in this gap, we all grow a psychological defense that we call the mad woman in the attic, this crazy, mean voice in our head that either is ragey about the injustice of a world that expects these bullshit things from us, or is ragey and critical of us for failing to meet the standard. And those are the only two choices. So we have this mad woman in our head. And I know a lot of the sort of mainstream advice around self-criticism is to just quiet that voice, turn off that voice, replace it with positive affirmations. And those things can work for people who don't have a particularly strong history of abuse, neglect, or trauma. But for folks who do, their brains actually respond to self-compassion interventions, for example, with a sense of threat. Their brains perceive self-compassion as a threat. So we do not recommend your basic self-compassion interventions for folks with significant histories of trauma, abuse, or neglect. Instead, we use this idea of the mad woman in the attic to separate that mean voice it's a, for me, my my mean voice, my mad woman is Tikka, the lava monster from Moana. Oh, yes. 
when I saw one in yes. theater and I saw this like mean as I saw it I was like it me whoa yep and I didn't even know at the time I'm a boy about to spoil the shit out of Moana Oh, well, be ready. Uh, you know, folks, it, it is, it has been out a while. Come yeah. on. And Disney Plus is here. So go watch it. Yeah. Everyone, <laughs> everywhere. I know there's critical things to say about race and the whole idea of princesses, but oh my God, Moana. Yes, Moana. So here's the thing. <laughs> Teka, the lava monster, who is the final worst barrier between Moana and her goal is Moana notices that Teka the lava monster has a spiral on her chest, which matches the spiral on the stone on the heart of Tefiti, which is this stone that was stolen from the goddess of life and abundance. And she realizes that she holds in her hand the heart of her own worst enemy. And so she commands the ocean, let her come to me. And the ocean parts and creates this damp sand pathway between her and this terrifying lava monster who comes roaring up the sand toward her. And Moana fucking sings her a song. I have crossed the horizon to find you. So now just imagine that you're turning toward your inner critic with kindness and compassion, recognizing that deep down under all this scary fire and rage, there is a goddess of life and abundance. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. I know who you are. And she restores the heart and all of the rock and the lava falls away, revealing the green, abundant goddess of life, Tefiti. When you can turn toward even your own worst enemy who lives inside your body with kindness and compassion, without fear, knowing that you hold her heart in your hand. It changes your relationship with this mean monster who lives inside you. Who is yelling. She wasn't born that way. She was made by a culture that stole something from her. I should say that Amelia's Madwoman is completely different from mine because, of course, hers is less of a voice and a personification and more of just like a physical reaction. Do you know what a dolly zoom is? No, I don't. That, that Alfred Hitchcock used a lot where you oh, yes. in the lens, but physically pull back the camera on a dolly. So the person in the middle of the frame stays the same size, but the background stretches and grows and it gives a sort of like vertiginous effect. Amelia's Madwoman is the sensation of a dolly zoom happening where her limbs are kind of stretching, but she's, so she's bigger, but she feels smaller inside. And when she finally recognized that when she experiences that feeling, which is like this sort of like big mix of shame and rage and isolation, all of which are these super dangerous, toxic emotions, if we just like let them stew in our bodies, she knows that she's being grabbed by these emotions. As soon as she recognizes and goes, oh, look, that's the mad woman, it, it just goes away. Without judgment, yeah. identifying it. And Just saying, like, oh, okay, I see. I see Hello. you there. <laughs> yeah, I know Hello. what you're for. I know mm-hmm. what you're trying to protect me. You're trying to keep me safe from this chasm between who I truly am and who the world says I'm supposed to be. And I'm going to land on the side of being who I am 
and recognize that there are costs to that and the world's going to be disappointed in me sometimes. And I'm going to, I'm going to tolerate that truth. We call living with the gap, being aware of the abyss. (laughs) And we all have this sort of like permanent understanding that we are never going to be what the world says we are. Mm -hmm. And going ahead and granting ourselves permission to perceive ourselves as enough anyway, that who we are is, it's not what the world says we should be, but it actually is pretty spectacularly great. Yes. And complex and never, ever, ever perfect. No. And beautifully so. Yeah. What a transformation it is when people make the shift from until I'm that thing that I'm supposed to be, I'm not enough and I'm broken. I have to beat myself up. I have to punish myself, torture myself until I finally get to this impossible standard. They shift away from that and are like, wait, I get that the impossible standard is there, but what if where I am right now, who I am right now is already beautiful and loving and plenty. Yes. I feel like your podcast, Feminism in 2020, the project, right? Yeah. Feminist Survival Project. Feminist Survival Project is a love letter. It sounds like a love letter. That's what it sounds like to me. Oh, that's a really good way to describe it. Yeah. Like we just want to bring more and more people with us And because we know when we bring more people with us to the end of 2020, we increase the likelihood that we ourselves are going to make it to 2020 because we've got our arms around each other and we're just going to march forward and not let go. No matter how much the world is telling us, we're not allowed to just like love the hell out of each other. Yes. Okay. I'm ready for the cups. I'm ready for the t-shirts. I'm ready for the (laughs) hashtag. Let's do it. Let's do it. So Emily, how do people find you in the world? The podcast has a website, Feminist Survival Project. I'm at emilynagoski.com. I'm on Instagram personally at enagoski, first initial, last name. Mostly that's pictures of my rescue pit bull, Thunder, who is extremely cute and lies on her back a lot with her legs mm. just displayed out. She is a model of happiness and joy for me. <laughs> so that's why I put her on the internet. And then the podcast has its own Instagram, FSP2020. Fantastic. Y'all, all all of that will be in the show notes. Get on there. There's episodes available now. We don't have to wait. Get on there now. The next episode that's coming out is about news consumption and how that relates to your wellness. I will be sharing that as well because let's be real, y'all. We need to, again, cling to one another. Cling to one another as we try to get through 20 to 2020. We just need to get to the February. That's all. And you know what? Here's Here's the reality. Like, 2020 is supposed to be great. It's actually a leap year, which is my birthday. And it's actually a leap year. So everybody listening, go out there and make (laughs) this next leap year amazing. (laughs) Again, Emily, thank you for being on the show. I so appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a joy. Everybody, thank you for sticking around to the end and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the Gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.